Well, greetings, brethren, and welcome to another Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, tonight, uh, we're not going to be continuing with an actual study. We're instead going to uh, change up the format a bit. And this entire episode is going to be devoted to your questions and, and, and answers, our answers. And uh, it, it is going to be this entire episode because uh, there have just been so, so many very good, substantive questions that we just need to take time to work through. And I said we because... And Pastor Murray, are you there? Yes, yeah, I got. Oh, he's, we, we've lost Pastor Murray. I'll, I'll go ahead and open with a, a word of prayer, and then hopefully Pastor Murray will be back in the studio, and we can continue with our Q&A. Our Heavenly Father, our great God Almighty, we pause, as we always do, to acknowledge you and to plead with you, Father, to be merciful to us and to, to participate in our study that the word spoken would be pleasing to you, and that through this process over time, we may better understand uh, the words of your holy prophets and those that you inspired to write these holy scriptures, and that with that better understanding, Father, we would conform to your will and to the mind of Jesus Christ. We praise you. We bless you, Lord. We thank you. We ask this in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. All right. Brother Murray, are you there? I am here. Yeah. Sorry about that. I had an internet connection issue. No, are you? I, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm still, my head is above water. Let's put it that way. I've, I've taken in some water, but I haven't drowned. I'm <laughs> busy, busy period. How about you? Yeah. Same. It's uh, really busy on our end for sure. Yeah. Uh, Work-wise, as you know, as uh, I'm not sure how many of our folks know, but we do hold down uh, jobs outside of ministry. So we, we are tent makers. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, busy time of year for us as well. So, no complaints. But um. yeah, just uh, you know, praise God that we are busy, that we have work to do, and that we can uh, participate in this very, very important uh, ministry. So, uh, we have from from you, brethren, and, and if there's time, we'll we'll consider more questions as well. So, uh, within the chat, we do have a direct feed from YouTube, or at least I think maybe there's two YouTube channels. One of the channels we do have a direct feed here. We can display questions. Uh, we will monitor face, uh, Facebook. We don't have a direct feed, but we will monitor. Uh, Facebook is tricky. If you post a question and we don't see it and some time elapses, we won't see it until we watch the replay. Uh, so if you've posted a question and you feel we haven't seen it, uh, just go ahead and post it again. And we are watching the, uh, the cgi.online.church website as well. So we did, we do have a few questions, um, that we want to get through. I have shared those with, uh, Pastor Murray. And I, I think we'll start with the first one, which I think is very timely. Uh, it came in from our sister Christy last week, and I didn't see it till after we looked at the replay or the chat on Facebook. And she asked an interesting question. Maybe, uh, Pastor Murray, you can kind of pose the question for us so we all know what the question is and then walk us through the answers. And if you need any scriptures thrown up, uh, let me know. Sure. Yeah, so the question we received, uh, would would love to have you explain the count to Pentecost this year. There seems to be some of us that think we are a week off. 
So we'd uh, love to tackle that. Um, so maybe be, be, before you, I don't know how you're going to approach it, but I was thinking um, some people may not even be aware that this is an issue. So if sure. we maybe frame it up so we understand what the issue is. Yeah, so um, I, when we, the counting of Pentecost is described for us in Leviticus 23. Um, we can go there. Why don't we go there? Okay. Leviticus 23. And I'll just bring it up here so that uh, we can all follow along with you. And and many of you may know, and we've been talking about it for the last number of Bible studies as well, that uh, we're in the middle of a count. So as you're looking that up, uh, there is a 50-day count from the the Feast of Love and Bread, and we'll get to some of those details in a second. Um, and it, that's how the Feast of uh, Pentecost is, is, is arrived at. That is a 50-day count. It's not on a specific day of a specific month of the Hebrew calendar like the other holy days are. It is 50 days from a certain day, and we're going to look at that now. So we begin in Leviticus 23, verse 15. We read, and you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. And uh, we'll, leave, we'll leave it there for right now. And, and sorry, uh, Pastor Murray, just so you know, in the King James, you might have been reading the New King James, in the King James it says a new meat offering, and you said a new grain offering. I don't know if that needs some clarification. Oh, then you know what? Uh, I did not notice that. Um, um, we can we can get to that. I just, yeah, I just I'll go to the. You want to make a, go ahead and make a comment on that. Uh, yeah, no, I just noticed that as you were reading. So you were reading from the New King James, and that was verse. That was verse. Um, 16. Yeah, it says grain offering. Okay, yeah. So I think uh, while you're doing that, I'll just take a quick look. Uh, well, we can just take a quick look at the Hebrew, sure, and see what's going on there. Uh, that was verse sixteen. Grain offering. Yeah. So the, the offering is uh, mincha, uh, and let's see. So this so it looks like it can be a meat offering. I'm not seeing grain here. Uh, let me switch over to King James. Just looking it up as well. Yeah, so it's a, they've, they've translated a meat offering. Um, I'd have to do a little bit more research on that, but it looks like uh, meat offering may be accurate. So the the uh, in in Strong's what I'm looking at here in Strong's is meat is is added. It's it's really a new offering. So it's whatever the Greek word for offering is. Um, uh, when I look up Strong's, uh, yeah. meat is, meat is an added word. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it is. It is. It both, well, so is grain, right? So it's uh, it's how they translate and how they decide. So given right. that it's Pentecost, uh, you know, maybe it does make more sense that it is in fact a grain offering. Um, but yeah, I, I just noticed that as you were reading. I guess I didn't yeah. know which trans- translation you're reading from. And you know what? It's a, it's a very good point to uh, to uh, highlight those those items. And I noticed yeah. when you're through your Bible study using the King James, and I've got two or three different versions here that there are some. Uh, uh, from time to time, there are some differences, which which is going to get into another topic later. That's why, for me, um, and I don't know if you can see it here, if I, yeah. So, I have tons of translations and dictionaries and 
um, just so that I can toggle back and forth and see how different translators have used their judgment in moving it to English. But we'll come to that later. Sure. Yeah, I, I do the same in my studies. So absolutely. So um, let me just get back to my uh, the topic here. So uh, we're talking here about the the um, timing of the Feast of Pentecost. So uh, generally, it's not an issue here. What we read here is uh, what we did read was that you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath. And that is um, the Sabbath during typically during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, now, most often it's not an issue. Uh, for instance, if we use an example, we start the, the uh, Passover is on a Sunday evening. Um, then the first day of unleavened bread would be the Tuesday. Uh, on the Sabbath, uh, day five of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that would be the Sabbath in the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the count would begin on day six of the feast, which it would be the Sunday. That would be day one of the Omer count. This year, uh, which is why uh, our sister highlighted the, the issue, um, and it doesn't happen too often. It's happened. I, it's happened four times in the, in this cent, this century. Uh, the most recent was 2008. Uh, it happens again in 2025, and then not again until 2045. Wow. Uh, so it doesn't happen often. Where Passover is on a Sabbath, so the 14th of the month is on a Sabbath, uh, which would mean we would have we would take the foot, the symbols and uh, perform the foot washing on Friday evening as we come into Sabbath. The night to be would be Saturday evening as it was this year. Uh, everybody recalls that because all of our all of our service times were all adjusted accordingly. We had the night to be Saturday evening, and then the first day of lemon bread is a Sunday. So what first day of the week? So that causes a, a, an issue because um, it, it is the, on the Sabbath follow it on the morrow after the Sabbath. Um, now that could mean uh, one of two things: we uh, count from the Sunday um, following the Sabbath during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would make it uh, that Sabbath would be day seven, the last day of Unleavened Bread, and therefore we would start to count. Uh, on the following day. Which, and so sorry. So that's why people think we're a week off because they're using that method. Is that right? Correct. Correct. So the, the, the they would use the uh, the method of counting on the Sabbath during the the festival, okay. which it doesn't necessarily it doesn't say that, but that's that's every other year it works that way. Right. Um, uh, so then the count would begin on the Sunday, which would happen to fall the wave sheet would fall outside of the of the festival. Okay, so hang on a second. Let me sure. So if they count on the seventh, then the wave sheaf offering is actually happening on the eighth day, which is outside of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's what you're saying. Correct. Correct. Or we count on the following the Sabbath uh, previous to the the feast, which would make day one, the, the first day of Unleavened Bread, the start of the count. So we either we either are forced to count from the Sabbath outside of the the, uh, the Holy Day at the beginning, or we count from the way sheaf offering outside at the tail end. So it, one or the other is falls outside of the, the Holy and, Day. And sorry, just so maybe if this was diagrammed, the, the wave sheaf offering in the second method, is that falling within the feast then? Correct. Like this year, it falls on day one of the Holy. So yes. on, on the first day of 11 bread, that is that would be That's, wave sheaf day. 
how we've how, how the Church of God International and most most other uh, Church of God groups keep it that way. Um, so the there are logical arguments from both sides. Uh, do we use the Sabbath in the middle uh, that falls within the the time frame of the holy days as day zero, which would make it the last day, as we mentioned. So we start the count. Day one of the count would be outside of the festival. Which pushes or the wave sheaf outside of the festival as well. Correct. Or does the wave sheaf belong inside the festival? And we use this, the preceding Sabbath, which falls outside of the festival. And there are, there are quite, honestly, there are logical arguments either way. Mm-hmm. Um, the What we need to look at here, if we could take a, a few verses here in uh, where we are, Leviticus 23, begin in verse 10. Okay, let me just catch up to you here. And really, we don't want to use logic. We, we want to use uh, scripture. And there's yeah. and there's no, there's no thou shalt not that I can find, or thou shalt mm-hmm, do this. Mm-hmm. But there is an example that that uh, is used to guide us accordingly. Um, and let me just uh, as we're looking as we're looking this up, let me let me say also and preface this by saying that. Uh, this has nothing to do with which calendar we use, whether we use the LL calendar and all those sorts of things. We're agreeing here that, and the question is posed by someone who agrees with us on the rest of the calendar, that the Passover was kept on the day that we keep it, trumpets, and we all keep trumpets on the same day, the, the Feast of Lemon Bread is the same. No arguments there. It's just which Sabbath do we use to count from mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for the wave sheaf? And, and, and it sounds like in either case, the, it, it's problematic. Sure. Yeah. If you, because there is a thou, there's no thou shalt, it seems, mm-hmm. at least as far as I can tell, and the research I've done, um, um, we there's a, there's a scripture we go to, which seems to me to make 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 it clear it right up. I would be interested in your comments once we get there, but I just want to preface it here with Leviticus 23. Um, Speak to the children of Israel, verse 10, and say to them, when you come into the land which I give to you, and reap its harvest. Then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. You shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord. And sorry, sorry, Pastor Murray, that's a great verse there that just show that it should be a grain offering. That it's right. explaining the grain offering right there. Yeah, I was thinking that as I was reading it, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, for pointing, thanks for stopping me and pointing that out. And its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hint. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to the Lord. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Uh, then what we already read, verses 15 and 16, describing the count. You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the wave sheaf, sheaf of the wave offering, Seventh Sabbath shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring uh, your you shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of a two tenths of an ephah. It goes on. I'll, I'll stop just for time's yeah. sake. I'll, I'll stop yeah. there. Let's drop down to verse uh, 22 though, and see that um, following the wave sheaf offering, the harvest can begin. When you reap the harvest of your land. You shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you glean any gleaning from your harvest. So this this really goes through, and, and before the harvest can begin, uh, it can't begin until the wave sheaf day when you take, which is really the first fruits. It's really uh, which is what this is. 
a first fruits offering to God. Um, and then once that is complete, that, that, that wave sheaf offering, then they can glean from the harvest and consume it themselves once the, once they partake of that, that first fruit. And that first fruit offering is that wave sheaf offering. Now, let's go to Joshua 5. Joshua 5. And this is the scripture that the, uh, not just our group, but most ch- churches of God group who keep it, uh, um, the way we're keeping it this year, the, the Omer count starting on the first day of 11 bread uses this, this is the, the, the scripture that we use. So this is the, the, um, second generation. They've, Moses has given the, the rereading of the law in Deuteronomy. They are now preparing to cross uh, into the promised land to partake of their first. They, they have, they, sorry, they have crossed over into the promised land uh, to partake of uh, and have partaken of the Passover. The second generation is circumcised here in chapter five. And then we'll pick it up in verse 10. Now the children and follow the timing as we read it. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. Just according to Torah, no issues there. So on the 14th, they've kept the Passover. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. So they ate, uh, they partook of the harvest on the day following the Passover, which would be the 15th. The only way for them to partake of the harvest would be to offer the uh, yeah, uh, wave sheet. So in this particular case, um, it seems that the 14th was a Sabbath and the 15th was the first day of the week. Therefore, they were they were able to partake of the harvest because right. they would have already. Uh, and he doesn't need to say it here. Mm-hmm. Um, this is descriptive, not not uh, mm-hmm. prescriptive, not prescriptive. So. Um, the prescription comes back in the Torah, mm-hmm. and we just follow the timeline here. So based on that, um, uh, there, this is one example where it seems the the uh, festival fell from a, a Sunday to a Sabbath, the first day mm-hmm. to a Sabbath, the Passover on the Sabbath, and they were able to, uh, on the very day after the Passover, partake of the harvest. So the, the logical question then would be, is there a counterexample where... It, it supports the first interpretation where you should count this, the eighth day. Is there anything in the scripture that supports that position? Not that I can find and not that, and not that any other, any other research paper has been able to, to find. Uh, I would be interested, uh, you know, comments from our folks or from our sister who raised the question. If there's a scriptural example, right. um, yeah. Yeah. And we certainly can go back and have a look if, if there's one cited. Very, very well done. Uh, excellent. Appreciate that. Very clear. Hopefully that's clear for our brethren and for our sister, Christy, who raised the question. Um, are you good there, uh, Pastor Murray? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yep. very good. Thank you for that. Um, we have a number of questions, but there's another question here that I want to tackle uh, or address, and uh, it has to do with uh, the Hebrew. So some people may feel uncomfortable because they see that I'm making an effort uh, to study the Hebrew. And when I'm referring to uh, Isaiah, for example, I'll use his Hebrew name, Yeshayahu. Uh, and when I'm referring to God Almighty, 
I, I will use his name where it says in the scripture, Yehovah, and to Christ as Yeshua. And there is this movement amongst the, that infiltrates at times the church of God, which is this uh, sacred names movement, which wants to enforce the use of Hebrew names uh, in the church. And, and you know, I've, I've interacted with folks like this. And I've always resisted it, and I resist it to this day. Um, but yet I am using Hebrew names. Well, so the brother who raised this was uncomfortable with the fact that he feels that I'm slipping, perhaps, into something that is not profitable. What I'll say is this. Uh, I want to address it a couple of ways. Um, the first way is as much as Pastor Murray and I are teachers, we have this incredible opportunity and privilege to teach scripture to God's people. And in so doing, edify the body of Christ. And, and who knows, when, when people really come to understand the scriptures appropriately and rightly divide the word of God, who knows what fruit you will bear? You know, and God says that we will be blessed for turning many to righteousness. So as we teach scripture and, and people and they write to us and tell us that they are really um, being inspired and, and, and a whole a whole new lease of life in, in their scriptural study. As they are edified, who knows what fruit they will bear? Uh, and so this is very, very important work that we do. And it's a high privilege as much as we are teachers. We are students. I think the best teachers are the best students. Someone who ceases to be a student and teaches, uh, to me, this is dangerous territory. This is where you know, I've got the whole thing figured out and I'll just teach people my knowledge. Uh, we're, we're interacting with the mind of God. And the mind of God, you know, it's, it's miraculously, it's, it's in these scriptures. It, the, the way these scriptures have been inspired, they contain the, the mind of God and how God thinks and, and his character. And so this is a lifelong study and a whole eternal life may not be enough time for us to really plumb the depths of the scripture. As we just witnessed right now in, in real time, I, I my, my um, and, and the person who's writing here as well believes that we should just stick to the King James. King James is the most accurate translation. You'll notice in my preaching, I exclusively preach from the King James. I do not trust the newfangled translations. I've done a study on them. Uh, they are all under suspicion as far as I'm concerned. Sometimes they get things right, but for the most part, I, I don't trust them. So I stick to the King James. But the King James is not the Bible. We just witnessed it. Where Pastor Murray was reading from the New King James, I threw up the, the King James and, and he read grain offering. and said, wait a minute, it says meat offering. Uh, we're reading English words. This is not the Bible. This is, this is a layer between us and the Bible. And that's why it's important to go to the Hebrew. If we had time and we were studying the Hebrew, we would see the minshat as the, the, the actual Hebrew word. We would study what does that word mean. We'd study it in context. We'd realize it's grain offering. The New King James got it right. The King James, the most accurate English translation, got it wrong. If we are real, and that's just one example of perhaps thousands within the scriptural corpus. So if you're relying on the King James and thinking that that's the Bible, it is easy for you to be deceived because over time it's a jigsaw puzzle and you think this piece fits here and this piece fits here. And therefore you think this is the picture 
when in fact that piece doesn't belong there. And the piece that you have attached to it, it doesn't belong there either. Lift it up and put it in the right corner. And now you're beginning to see what this really means. And now that you've got it in the right corner, there are other pieces that were just hanging around loosely that you can now fit because you've put those in the right place. So this is why we make this effort as students to and we study multiple translations. Murray says he's got multiple translations that he studies from. I've got multiple translations that I access and I'm making an effort to access both the Hebrew and the Greek. Now there's a difference between the Hebrew and the Greek. The Greek is not the Bible. Anything in the Bible that's in Greek is not the Bible. It is in fact a commentary on the Bible. All of the apostolic writings in the New Testament, these are, they were using the, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, and they were commenting on it, inspired, and therefore becomes part of our English Bible, our, our modern day Bible, our Christian Bible. But the, the Greek text is not the Bible, nor is the Septuagint. The Bible is the inspired word of God, which was inspired in Hebrew and Aramaic. Now, the brother also says, you know, there's a scripture and we'll go to it, that God will turn to the people a new language. And to him, he says, if it's new, then it's super new. And there's no point getting caught up in any human language, including Hebrew, if God is eventually going to give us a new, and if it's coming from God, therefore it's super new language. I, I've got to debate this, and uh, I will come to the scripture and debate that. I think these were the main um, objections that they had, but let's go to the scripture, and uh, we'll just read this together so we can be on the same page, just to again underline the importance of studying the Hebrew. And these names have meaning. When we say Isaiah and Jesus, you know, these words, Isaiah, Jesus, they don't have any meaning. They're just names. But when you say Yeshayahu and Yeshua, and you understand the meaning of the Hebrew, then all of a sudden it's crystal clear. Yeshayahu is pointing. He's a pointer to Yeshua. Because Yeshayahu is saying, through all of this dark text that I'm I'm inspiring and, and writing in the scroll, I'm actually pointing to the one who can correct all of this. So the inspiration of Yeshayahu is actually pointing to Yeshua. And if we don't understand the Hebrew and the Hebrew meaning, we miss this. And therefore we mistreat, and I'll even say we abuse Isaiah. Isaiah is a very convenient poetic book, and we abuse the prophet by using him at our convenience. Instead of realizing, okay, this prophet stands apart from all of the other prophets. The Hebrews call him the prince of the prophets, the head of the prophets. And, and he was given special revelation. And therefore we come, as we're trying to do now, week by week, humbly before this teacher, Isaiah, trying to understand what is it that he was inspired to teach and trying to understand it in context and as much as possible Going back and, you know, hopefully a year from now, two, three, five years from now, God, God, if God spares life, uh, I will have a better grasp even. And we'll maybe have to go back over Isaiah again and do it again. But let's just look at some passages here. And, and sorry, Pastor Murray, I just wanted to uh, address this. No, I hope you don't mind. Yeah. yeah, no, this is yours for sure. Go ahead. Thanks. Um, so look at Psalm 83 and verse beginning in verse 16. 
fill their faces with shame, speaking of the Gentiles, that they may seek your name, O Yehovah. So we want the Gentiles to seek the name of Yehovah, and, and we want to fill them with shame until they do that. Let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish, that men may know that you, whose name alone is Yehovah, art the most high God, so art the most high over all the earth. And that actually brings me to this other thing. Why don't we just use the word God? Well, it's English. We use God. I say God. But if you look at the etymology of the word God, it is a pagan root. There's no such thing as the word God or any derivation of that in the Hebrew Bible. It's a word. It's a concept that just does not exist in the Hebrew Bible. So when we're using this term God, we have deviated from the Bible and from the concepts of the Bible. And we are actually being polluted by pagan ideology and doctrine. So God does not exist in the Bible. Yehovah exists in the Bible. That is his name. And all men all over the earth are going to know this name, Yehovah. He's not saying, uh, use this name Yehovah as a placeholder until I come. And then I'm going to have another name. This is his name. And when he comes, all men all over the earth are going to know this name. And they're going to come to Mount Zion and they're going to praise God using this name. So Yehovah is his name. There should be no objection from anybody anywhere in the church to using the actual name of God, Yehovah. What we don't want is people making it a legal enforcement and beating people over the head if they don't speak Hebrew. No, but if we, if those of us who are studying Hebrew can bring out meaning, and there's, there's really no translation for Yehovah. The, the, you know, I, I used to, when I was in Worldwide, Herbert Armstrong would say the eternal. That's a pretty close English capturing of Yehovah. But it really cannot be translated. But it is the sense of ever living one. Ever living in past eternity, ever living in future eternity, and, and ever present. Uh, it's just hard to translate. It's in the word Yehovah. Now, so everybody's going to learn this, this name. And I know in the back of your mind you're thinking, yeah, but there's a new language coming. I'll come to this. In Isaiah 12 and verse 2, I, I just, you know, on Sabbath I had this um, passage open, and I had the Hebrew open beside it. And I was just looking at the Hebrew, and I suddenly saw Yeshua. And I thought, what's Yeshua doing in Isaiah? I don't really recall Isaiah speaking about Jesus. And so I had to look like, what's going on here and read the text? It was this verse, Isaiah 12, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. And this is not the English word God. This is, uh, if we look, it's probably the word uh, Adonai. Uh, let's just look at this. It's L. So I meant L. Yeah, so L. So there's no concept of the word God, the English word God in the Bible. So L is my salvation. And L means God. There's other L's. This is the almighty L. But the same way that we say God, in fact, on this whole notion of just God. Remember that congressman, uh, Pastor Murray, that uh, he went into the Congress and gave this prayer and ended it with a men and a women? <laughs> yeah, I think it was a Georgian George congressman, if I remember right. I'll get you the name. Just That's right. Yeah, so this, this guy, he, he prayed and he ended his prayer with a men and a women. Uh, completely foolish. But what he said before that 
was that he comes, he's praying in the monotheistic God of Brahma, and I named all these gods, that they're all God. So when we say, okay, everybody, let's praise God, you can have a Muslim who is praying to Allah, who has nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do with the God of the Bible, except to be an adversary to the God of the Bible. You could have a Hindu who's praying, praying to Brahma. You could have Buddhists, you could have, you could have a, a pagan who's praying to trees. And when you say, okay, everybody, time to pray to God, you'll get no objection. But if we say, let us praise Yeshua, the Most High, Yeshua, and Jehovah, let us bow your heads and get down on your knees and bow to Yeshua. Now we have a fight on our hands because they don't want to praise Yeshua. So we can get away with this sort of slippery, loose language of talking about God. But we don't want to do that. We want to talk about Yeshua, the Savior. And we want to talk about Yehovah, the ever-living one. And now, now there's a demarcation. And God says in Matthew 24, we shall be persecuted and hated by all nations for his name's sake. So the name of God we must not take lightly. But he says here, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For, Yeho- for the Lord, Adonai Yehovah, anytime you see Lord with its sort of lowercase, big and then lower, that's Adonai. When it's all upper, then this is uh, uh, Yehovah. So he says, Yehovah is my strength and my, let me just confirm this. Yeah, Yehovah. He says it's actually Yehovah, Yehovah. So he's doubled, doubling down. Uh, where you see it, Lord, here, then it's Adonai. So when you see it just a, a sentence case, it's Adonai. When you see it all caps, it's Yehovah. So he says, for the Yehovah, Yehovah is my strength and my song. And he also is become my salvation. And that's the word that was just up in Hebrew. And I happened to glance and I reading the Hebrew and I said, that says Yeshua. So this is the, the power of the name that Isaiah, Yeshayahu, is pointing to Yeshua. And here he's saying he's going to trust and he's, despite everything that's going to happen, the catastrophic events that are about to take place, he will not be afraid. Yehovah is his strength and his song and has become his Yeshua. So these Hebrew words and names are very, very meaningful. They, they, they cannot be fully translated into another language. It's like the, the language is a container of meaning and it has a certain structure. And another language has a completely different structure. And we're trying to take the meaning out of the container and then it has this molded shape. And then we're trying to jam it into another container that has a different shape. And pieces are breaking off and falling off and there's gaps. So we put water in to fill the gaps. And, and so we end up with something that is an approximation of the original meaning, but it's not the original meaning. And so we should not resist going deeper and trying to understand more, even if it challenges preconceived notions. Now, I want to address, I'll just wrap up in a little bit. I want to address this notion that if God is going to give us a new language, then it's going to be super new. And we don't need to worry about any of the languages today, including Hebrew. I contend with this issue. And I've struggled with it myself. Because I, I've, I'm studying the he, I, I studied Greek first, and then I'm studying Hebrew, and I've got to say the Greek is a more powerful language. 
It's a more elegant language. It's it's more of a workhorse and can deal with uh, more conceptual issues. The the Greeks were big conceptual thinkers and needed a language that could work for their big philosophies that they were trying to explore. So So the language is very robust in handling philosophical concepts. And so it's no surprise that God uses this language or Alexander the Great to spread this language all over the world and then has this profound uh, plan of salvation articulated in this language because it can contain these big ideas and and very robustly, very uh, handily. So I'm looking at the Hebrew and I'm seeing like, this is not a pure language. By any means, this this is a very, um, I'll say it's a polluted language to a certain, yeah, I'll say that. I know it's going to offend some people. It's, you know, it's a very um, hardworking language. You know, two words together carry an intense amount of meaning, whereas in the Greek they would make that more of a sentence, but but really be accurate. So, So the Hebrew does a lot of work with few words, but it's not a pure language for a few reasons. For just just look at the vowel system. The vowel system is an add-on. The Greeks' vowels are built right into the language. But for the Hebrews, it was more of an oral culture. And then they expected you to know the scriptures by heart. So you didn't need any support in how to read. You just look and you just kind of know what it says. But through the persecutions and the loss of the lives of these people who had everything memorized, and then they started to find that people were looking at the text and they really didn't understand, is it this or is it that? It could be either. There's no help here. So they figured out they've got to add vowels. But they can't change the text. The text is sacred. They can't alter the text. And they came up with the, these brilliant minds, came up with this vowel system as an overlay on the Greek. But the fact that they need to put an overlay on, oh, sorry, on the Hebrew, the fact that they need to put an overlay on it means that it was insufficient of itself. And, 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 and the, the, so there's an inadequacy there. And there's all kinds of issues with, with the vowel system as well. Also, the text that we have, when we say we're going to look at the Hebrew, so if I were to uh, look at the Hebrew text here. So if we're looking at this Hebrew text, this is flawed text. We're here, we're looking at this Hebrew, it's flawed text. Why? Because if, if we were to show this text to the original Hebrews, Somebody like Father Abraham, he would not be able to read this. He wouldn't know, he wouldn't have the foggiest idea what this says. Because this is Amoraic text. This, this text structure comes from the Amoraic. This is, this is sort of, this is a sort of second generation Hebrew, which in the time Aramaic was the dominant language, which they borrowed that alphabet system, so to speak, and they use it for the Hebrew. The Paleo Hebrew, the original Hebrew looks nothing like this. In fact, from this Hebrew, it's very hard to draw a connection to the Greek. The Greek language comes from the Hebrew. It's a derivation from Hebrew, but it's from Paleo-Hebrew. So if you look at the Paleo, the original Hebrew text, you can see where the Greek letters come from. But this is Aramaic text. So again, this is not the original pure Hebrew language. Now, having said all of that, how I struggled with this, because I said like... Um, no, there's a pure language coming. So it, it's not going to be Hebrew. But I, I think actually, I think it will be Hebrew. What do I mean? Let's look at this text here. This is Isaiah's, Isaiah's calling. 
in the year of King Uzziah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Adonai sitting upon a throne. And that's another thing. I, I love to say Yehovah. When the Jews are saying, you must not say his name, and they want to hide it. No, we, we understand what his name is. We understand what it means. And nowhere in the text does it say his name must not be called upon. In fact, it says the opposite. So they will always kind of hide the name of the Lord and say Adonai when it really should be Yehovah. So I like to say Yehovah. I'm not talking about Allah. I'm not talking about Buddha. I'm talking about Yehovah. So here he says Adonai meaning master. He saw the Lord. Now listen to this. He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings and with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet and with two he flew. So Isaiah is being sort of plunged into this throne room and he's seeing all of the goings on and the seraphim and the Lord. He's seeing all of this. And now first he's seeing like John and now he's listening and he says, and one cried unto another and said, holy, holy, holy is Yehovah Zavuot. How would he know? That the seraphim are saying that Yehovah is holy, 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 unless he could understand their language. And I think we need to make a separation between spoken language, oral language, and that which is written down. And the history of Hebrew shows us this, that Abraham was a Hebrew. He spoke Hebrew. Isaac was Hebrew. Jacob was Hebrew. But if you showed this Hebrew text to these men they'd be lost. They wouldn't know what you're talking, they wouldn't know what it says because they wrote in Paleo-Hebrew. If you spoke it to them in Hebrew, they would, in Classical Hebrew, they would know what you're saying. But if you presented this Hebrew text to them, they'd have no idea. So there's a separation or a difference between language that is spoken and how it is written down. So here, Isaiah is in the throne room Angels are talking to each other, and he perfectly understands what they're saying. How he writes it down is a separate issue. So clearly, Yehovah is his name, and the whole world is going to know this. He says, the whole earth is full of his glory, and then the, the post moved. And then he said, he's woe, he's undone because he's unclean, because he's seeing the king, Yehovah Zavuot. The Lord of hosts. And this again, Zavot, these armies. When he comes, he's coming with the Zavot. He says, then one of the seraphim, so he's speaking up, and the seraphim understand him. So they come, and they take care, they cleanse him and purify his mouth. And then he said, then he heard the voice of Adonai. So now it's not just the angels he's hearing. Now he's hearing God himself speak. And he's, he's perfectly clear what God is saying. Saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I answered and I said, I'm, I'm right here. I'll, I'll go. God is able to have a conversation with Yehovah. And then he says, and then Yehovah gives him specific instructions of what to tell the people. And I'm sure that uh, Yeshayahu followed this out to the T, did exactly what he was told to do. But he's able to have a conversation with God. What language were they speaking? Did he have to suddenly learn? a heavenly language in order to communicate with God and understand the angels? Or was the language that he spoke and the, the covenant that, that God has with these people, did he give them this language so that they could understand and praise him accurately? Now, 
he says. So the conversation goes on there. But I wanted to go now to this, and this is my last uh, passage, Pastor Murray, uh, Zephaniah. So the notion that, well, if God is going to give us a new language, if it's coming from God, it's going to be super new, so we can forget all of these languages on the earth. Uh, I contend with that, because here, if we actually read the passage, he says, for then, at this time, will I turn to the people a pure language. It's not a new language. It's a pure language. So he doesn't say, nowhere in here does he say, at this time, I'm going to give the people not only a new language, but a super new language. You know, he says, a barar, barar language, which you can see, one of it is to, to, to cleanse, to clean. So barar is it's a chosen language, it's a bright language, it's a, it's a polished language. So Isaiah was in heaven, and he was perfectly capable of understanding and conversing with the other beings in heaven, including God himself. But the language that he is using and that we are using now is not a pure language, how it's written down. God is going to give us a purified language. And in fact, it's not a pure language as well because Aramaic has creeped into it. Some Babylonian words have creeped into it. So the language is polluted. But the language itself, Isaiah understood in heaven. It was being used, a language that was being used in heaven. Isaiah was perfectly fluent in that language. So it's not a new language. It's a purified language. Why? That they may call upon what? Why is he going to give them this purified language? That they may call upon the name of Yehovah to serve him with one consent. So as the whole world comes flocking to Mount Zion, being instructed by specifically the tribe of Judah, but all the tribes of Israel, which is that whole operation being overseen by the first fruits harvest. As the whole world now is really at one and comes to praise God, it's important that they have a language that does not contain filthy concepts, that you're not, you're not combining filthy concepts with the holiness of God, that the language will be cleaned up, uh, filthy satanic concepts will be removed, holy, high, righteous concepts will be embedded. We think with words, which is why um, the current regime that we're living under is removing words from our vocabulary. We're not allowed to say certain words. Soon the, the, the name of Christ will be against the law. Because we think with words. Words are the tools with which we form thoughts. And so taking these words out of the language means we can't think like that anymore. Putting new words in the language, uh, cisgender, uh, trans, what? what? What are these things? They contain concepts that now you and I entertain that we would have, our imaginations would have never taken us there. But that's the workhorse of language. So God is going to purify the language so that everybody can praise Yehovah. That's his name. And the whole world will know his name. So I would encourage everybody to get comfortable with the Hebrew names. You know, just this week, I had twice this week. Actually, this week and last week, I had somebody, uh, one person referred to me as Andre last week. Uh, this week, somebody referred to me as Andrea. Immediately, I correct them. That's not my name. My name is Adrian. Thank you. For, and I had to correct one person, a leader, publicly. I'm just like, no, that's not my name. And so names matter. And God changes people's names and gives names for a reason. And I think we have to have a, a great deal of respect for that. So I apologize if my digging into the Hebrew uh, makes you uncomfortable. As I mentioned, we're students. And that's, in my view, that's the only way we can be effective teachers. 
The word of God has to be alive. It's like running water. And every week that I come before this camera, it has to be running water. Hey, this is what I, this is what I've received this week. It can't be like stale, stagnant water that, hey, this is what I received 50 years ago. And I'm just going to dust it off and give it to you again. So sorry for that. I think it's a very important uh, concept. I went on a, a little bit long, but uh, I want to make sure that I did that, that I did address it. Uh, sorry, Pastor Mar, your, your thoughts and comments. And then and then there's another question that I hope you'll address next. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, so uh, definitely, uh, um, I'm not a language expert. Um, I do use Strong's. Uh, I do see the value for sure, uh, and use Strong's quite a bit in my in my speaking. Uh, it's uh, the the English language is, as you've mentioned, is such that it it uh, uh, does not get the point across. It's I can go as just as basic as the word love or the word judge in the Greek scriptures. Uh, yes, is something. Uh, and as as uh, society today changes, you mentioned all, all of the changes in in society today. Never mind new words, cha- adding changing the meanings of current current words we know um, to completely change those meanings. Yes, um, is is also that. So I definitely appreciate uh, um, um, learning about God uh, in in that way. Uh, uh, the, the Hebrew names issue is something that goes all effect. It was, you know, does cause some confusion and some angst in people. Um, and I think in, in some respects where people, there, there's a Hebrew root, Hebrew root movement that bothers some people. And I think uh, you've addressed that that's not where, that's not the, your purpose here uh, of, of getting into that. Um, and, you know, to John 17 verse 3 tells us that to know, to know God is eternal life. And um, he reveals himself um, um, to us in those in his names he is the god who heals he is the god who who keeps covenant he is the god who who uh is our banner uh all those sorts of things so i definitely appreciate the studies that you've done on that i i, I can't uh um uh, that, that's not my area of expertise right now hopefully i will get some time to, to look into that though yeah very good appreciate that and just a question here from Stephen scale which i really appreciate isn't this a vision though if jehovah gives isaiah a vision wouldn't it be in whatever language isaiah understood that's that's a reasonable question and then backing this up uh was isaiah literally in heaven since yeshua says in john three thirteen, no man has ascended into heaven i i, I take your point uh brother Stephen. i think yes it's a vision but it's a it's a reality. It's uh you know I, I think John John had a vision, but but there's a reality there as well. He really saw the throne room, and and God made that available to him. I think God really made the throne room available to Isaiah. But that doesn't mean I, I think I, I take your point. Isaiah does not necessarily have to be up in in heaven. He's on earth, but he's having this vision revealed to him, much like um, when Christ was uh, transcended with the Elijah and Moses. Uh, the transfiguration, uh, and that vision was revealed to Peter and John. That, that's real. Like that, that, that's how these men are going to look. Um, but it was, it was a vision that God could kind of fast forward the future. I'm not sure of the details of it, but I don't think there's this sort of like, you know, we, we speak a language in heaven and then we're just going to speak Chinese because, uh, Isaiah speaks Chinese, so let's just make it available to him in Chinese. I, I really don't take that here. I, I see when, when God, and, and proof of this to me is the whole world is going to call upon the name Yehovah. How they write it, what script they'll use to write it, that's a completely separate issue. And that script, whatever it is, is going to be a pure language. But the, the name, how it falls on the ear, Yehovah, that's his name for eternity. And so therefore, that says to me, the language is Hebrew. It needs to be cleaned up. 
It needs to be purified, but the whole world is going to call him Yehovah. And there's meaning in that that is not translatable. So, Pastor Murray, sorry, were you going to say, there's another question that's sort of related here. Yeah, so just before we go there, I just wanted to address uh, back to the first question about the timing of Pentecost. There are still some questions out there. I don't want to address them here uh, um, with regard to some of the scriptures that were used and, and uh, some other points to them. What I, what I would ask uh, is, uh, you know, those folks that uh, have put those comments in there, if you can reach out to me. Um, what, what I'm really looking for and what I haven't seen in any of the comments or the questions is proof from the scriptures that we need to, that it should be the other way, that it, that we should be counting right. from, um, I, I, I said at the beginning, I can see the logic in both. Uh, so the scripture that we used, uh, is used by the church of God movement, generally speaking, not just ours to, to help, uh, make that decision. Uh, because it is so, because it is a rare occurrence where the the Sabbaths fall that way, and part of it has to do with with postponements and all those sorts of things. And you talked about needing to purify the language, uh, God will. I suspect, and I'm just speaking my own opinion here. I suspect God needs to purify His calendar as well. Um, yes. Um, so um, what the, the the church does need to make a decision, and it uses these scriptures for that. What I haven't seen, and I'm asking, is if there is actual Here's why we need to keep it um, using the, sev- the seventh day of eleven bread as day zero. Um, right. that, that I can't find. So yeah, we we can we can poke holes in, in the scriptures, Isaac, but but let's find some uh, some uh, evidence, some real yes. Probably support the other way. I'm, I I would appreciate that from from our brethren. Great, great point. There was a question here, um, uh, just very quickly. The question that I wanted to raise next, um, Pastor Murray, which was also raised, was um, do we so. There's a little bit of concern that when we speak, I might say, wow, you know, Pastor Murray's sermon last night, uh, last week was very profound. I'm going to build on it. Um, or, you know, you might say Adrian's message was profound. Jan might say your message was profound. It's like, is every message profound? Are you guys just doing this not to hurt each other's feelings? And also, do you collaborate beforehand? Do you tell each other what you're going to speak about and organize beforehand? Uh, so if you could comment on that, there is a question here. Um, do you have proof that the Greek evolved from Hebrew? So I have to go back into my, my text, but I'll just show you here very quickly, uh, just so you get the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the evolution of the alphabet. So this proto-Sinetic, this is the, this is an example of the, um, Paleo-Hebrew, where the symbols of the letters, so for example, this is an ox's head. And so these were the Canaanites who developed this language, uh, this ability to do this alphabet, where they said that, you know, we need to write it down. So, ah, oh, oh, let's say the word is actually ox. I don't know what their word was. But that makes, to start that word, you say, ah, ah. So they drew the head of an ox. And that's how, and then the ba, ba, they drew a house, what a house looks like. So so in Hebrew, it's uh, bait, but whatever the Canaanite language was, maybe similar to bait. So they drew a house. And so, you know, for, for I, they drew an eye. And so this is how this is how the language they just used symbols of what they knew and they took the first sound of that symbol to say that that's what that means. That is what that's what the Paleo Hebrew looks like. The Phoenicians then borrowed that and made it more symbolic. They took less of an illustration of the uh the sound or the animal or the object and more symbolic. From this, now you turn this ox head on its on its side and you're beginning to see how the Greeks came up with the alphabet. So from the Aleph bet 
to the alphabet, which ultimately comes into the English language, the, the, the modern language. So all of this goes all the way back to the invention of the Canaanites of how to write language. And then the Hebrews then took this up and then developed their Paleo-Hebrew. And then the Greeks in, de- de- developed that, and then we have the Romans and the English building on the, um, building on the work of the Greeks. So that's just a, you know, a quick example. I, I could probably find a, uh, a better uh, path, but I think that's pretty good. How you see these, these Canaanites were very, very clever to come up with a way of, of having written script in an oral culture. And then the Hebrews took that and built the Hebrew from it. And then the, the, um, Phoenicians, the Greeks, they then, and then to the Romans, that went one way. And then the, from this, um, Paleo Hebrew, we have the, uh, the, the modern, even now we have modern Hebrew, but even before modern Hebrew, we had the, uh, so Paleo Hebrew, then there was the second generation Hebrew. Now we have modern Hebrew. Uh, so that Hebrew language is following its own path of evolution. But our English language today can be traced back to Hebrew as well. So, uh, Pastor Murray, uh, the question around, um, I think it was two part. It was, uh, you know, do we collaborate beforehand? And is every message profound? You know, are we saying that just to not hurt each other's feelings? Yeah. So let me, let me, uh, interesting question. Um, pondering it as you were, appreciate the time that you took here with the alphabet. So time to ponder that. Um, the, uh, I think I'd like to answer it if, if this way. Um, and maybe offer some insight into what our viewers may not know. Um, f- first of all, within the CGI ministry, um, we practice a couple of concepts. One is called servant leadership, in the, in the, and that's uh, taught to the, the eldership. It's uh, that we we are servants in, in our we're not we're not authoritarian. We're not uh, kings or Caesars, but we're, we're servants in ministry. Um, the, the other concept that we're that we have taught in our training is the plurality of eldership. And, we, and uh, the training goes through all of the New Testament examples of everywhere where Paul raised up churches. And there were elders, plural, in each, in each city, which really serves to uh, protect the congregation and protect the, the ministers themselves. Um, it, saves, it saves me from getting a big head because I work with you. It saves both of us. And from likewise. Because we've, we've got uh, our brother Jim French um, and we've got our deacons, uh, uh, David and Jan. Um, uh, so, so we, pr- that's one concept, th- those two concepts that we practice here. Um, the other thing, another thing I'd like to mention is that our services and our studies, um, especially our services, uh, I know we've been locked down and for the last 14 months and we publish our services and that's, you know, we're blessed to have that ability. You've, you, uh, uh, the technology that you have at, at your disposal allows us to do that, but really, our services, first and foremost, are for our congregation. Uh, right. That's where we, that's where we have oversight. It's, it's we pastor our congregation. That we that we are able to uh, uh, stream or uh, live stream our service and, and allow other people to listen in. That's that's a blessing. We, we certainly love to be able to to serve in that way. But our messages, first and foremost, are for our congregation. That's where we have that's where we have oversight. That's where we've been assigned to. Um, but that, and that's our main task is to feed our congregation uh, for our service. Um, the third item that that people may not may not realize is we actually have following the service we have an after sermon discussion, and that's where our congregation comes together on Zoom. And it's not just a Zoom conversation. When long before we were we were forced out of our our live services, 
we would have these after-sermon discussions. And it really allows for an interactive discussion with our members to talk about the sermon, to, you know, follow up points, ask questions. Um, and we get into, you know, 60, 90-minute discussions about these things. And quite often what happens here in, in this interactive uh, session is ideas come up, something comes up. In fact, I know for a fact that this week's sermon is part and parcel of, uh, that uh, Brother Jim is going to be giving, came out of the discussion last week. Um, so we've got a lot of factors here where we, where we work closely together in the congregation. We practice concepts like plurality of eldership, sermon leadership. We involve the congregation in, in, these dis- in discussions. We have an online discussion feed called Slack that we use all the time. Um, so uh, quite frankly, yeah, we are actually always discussing things. Um, and I know it's not typical of how typical Church of God uh, congregations operate. They operate in a hierarchical with, uh, with one man as the head, and, um, you know, everybody falls under him. And, um, you know, some, and I, I've experienced this, you can't even pull out your Bibles in some of these places. Mm, without I've experienced that as well. So um, um, it, it works well for us. Uh, are we perfect? No. Um, are we trying to uh, pump each other up? No. Uh, but, um, what, if I use the word profound too much, uh, maybe I gotta find some other adjectives, I guess. Uh, but, um, um, the other thing I would say is I, I think it would be great if all sermons were profound. I mean, that's what we're here to do, right? Is to, is to, to tap the mind of God. This, yeah. this is, this is not us speaking, it's God speaking. Yeah. And I understand where, where the question is coming from. Um, it's it certainly, I've been around the, the Church of God movement. I grew up in worldwide, all those sorts of things. It's um, but the, what we do have freedom in CGI is to establish a, a local culture, and that's all really we've done is establish right. a local culture. Right. We're not trying to force. We're not trying to force it on everybody else. It just yeah. works for us. And I just want to comment, just to clarify, in terms of sermon content, we don't typically talk with each other about sermon content. We talk a lot, even with our congregation. And as Murray said, that might inspire us to go deeper in a certain angle or certainly, certainly we leverage each other uh, from week to week. And, you know, Jan might say something that Murray builds on. Murray might say something that, Hey, I think I can do something with that. So that certainly happens. Just this past two weeks, however, and this does happen from time to time. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, Murray and I happened to be walking together at the same time for exercise. Uh, and so we were able to just connect and talk. And um, I shared with him, you know, I'm, this is what I'm thinking for my next sermon. It's sort of a very big topic, and I'm, I'm trying to get my head and my arms around it. But I'm wrestling with it. And I just wanted to kind of bounce it off him and see what he thought. I don't usually do that, and nor do they do that with me. Uh, and same with uh, my Deacon Jan last week. I got to speak with him. And again, just because it is such a difficult topic that I'm trying to tame, I just want to kind of bounce it off him. What do you think? But that is unusual. Normally they don't know until, until I publish the title uh, or they publish their title and we put it in our order of service. I usually don't know what they're coming with next. Uh, but we do talk a lot in that way. Um, there was a feast a few years ago in uh, Collingwood that we hosted, our congregation hosted. And we set a theme for the feast, which was unusual. And the theme was that others may live, that we wanted to really focus on as first fruits. This is not about us. We, we are taking up this cause and this mission wholeheartedly that others may live. And so every sermon during that feast, all we gave was just the theme. And 
you know, men could go any which way they wanted to on that. So that is really good. Um, just very quickly, Murray, I don't want to distract you, but there was just a co- couple of comments here. Very interesting comment from Sister Donna. I learned that it's actually a curse if your name is not to be spoken or blotted out. That's fascinating. You know, so if we, if we stop or prevent the holy name of God from being spoken like the Jews are doing, the, the, the rabbis, I should say, not the Jews, uh, that is dangerous territory. Uh, Stephen Scale says, uh, do you think John got the revelation and visions in Hebrew and then recorded it in Greek? I absolutely believe that. Uh, I, I believe that it was in Hebrew um, and then recorded in Greek. Greek was sort of the, it's like everybody speaks English, the lingua franca. It's just easier to put it in English. Everybody can understand it that way. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I received it in English, especially if I'm trilingual. Um, Okay, here, this is, uh, yeah, so here, so the name is Hebrew, but then it's translated to Greek. Great example. That's fantastic. Uh, that is great. Very, very good. Uh, Pastor Murray, back to you. That, that was it. That's all I that really wanted okay. to cover. Yeah, um, um, I definitely appreciate this, the, 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 the question, but, uh, you know, uh, um, every congregation here is a little bit different and we, uh, uh, do our best. And, you know, as I said, we're not perfect. We're all, we're, we're still learning. So. Okay, so there's two more questions, or, or two more. There's multiple questions, but two more, two, two more brethren that raise questions. These are big ones. Um, I, I was prepared to talk about them tonight. If you don't mind, Pastor Murray, you willing to come back next week, and we can just sure. continue? Yeah. Uh, so let's uh, let's do this, and then um, there's a question around Babylon and Assyria being destroyed together. There's a question around the identity of the beast. Could it possibly be America? Uh, there's some question around Isaiah 10 and 19, which is related. And then there is a question that it's not really related to the study of Isaiah, but we can certainly uh, address it here. And it's that uh, are we as first fruits going to be raptured on Pentecost, taken away, marry Christ, be instructed and then come back with him on trumpets to then assist him with the fall harvest? So I think uh, those questions uh, will carry them over then to next week. And I think that will make for an interesting discussion. I don't know if there's anything else that's uh, simpler, uh, Pastor Murray, that you saw that we might I, be able I to. I didn't really. I, I didn't really. Again, you know, definitely appreciate uh, uh, the many that follow us and the comfortability with asking the questions. We really yeah. appreciate the opportunity to do so. And, uh, you know, um, especially regarding the, the, the first question regarding the time of Pentecost, um, that's just kind of where we're at right now. Certainly, I'm, I'd, I'd love to hear some some uh, some feedback for the other side, uh, where you're coming from, right. and uh, some scriptural scriptural there. I, I'm, I'm certainly open to to, uh, to hear, hearing where your thoughts are. And I think uh, just on that, you just reminded me of a couple of things. One is um, when we started our congregation in Burlington, we created this after sermon discussion. And the premise, when we originally created it, 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 it sort of uh, served another purpose that was unexpected. But the original purpose was there may have been something that was said during the sermon, which was questionable. And our, our premise was no one is above the word of God. If I'm standing up and I'm speaking for an hour and I'm saying, thus saith the Lord, and the Lord actually didn't say that. We, we are a room full of adults. We're Christian adults here. We are all baptized. We all have the Holy Spirit. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit. I don't have the right 
or the authority to say, thus says the Lord, to Holy Spirit-filled people, when the Lord actually didn't say that. So, so the after-sermon discussion was a, a protection mechanism for the brethren. Should, should Murray and I get up and say something with that, which actually isn't scriptural? It was a, hey, everybody be comfortable. We're all Christians here. We were all empowered by the Holy Spirit. Sort of a 1 Corinthians 14. Anybody can be inspired to speak and question and teach in that after-sermon discussion. So that became part of our culture, that we are scripturally based. And everybody who's Holy Spirit-filled has the right to ask questions and, and probe and say, hey, what about this? An additional benefit that we didn't anticipate was what Murray was talking about, was the, the digestion of the material. That Murray's sermon last week, for example, I'm digesting it. But in our after-sermon discussion, when I hear how other people are digesting it, and particular points that he made that really impacted some of the brethren, I'm like, wow, that didn't really impact me that way. Um, or I, I kind of missed that. Or I caught that, but I, it didn't affect me the same way. All of that helps us to digest it's like sort of a, a collaborative digestion process and to remember. So there's that. The other thing that I wanted to mention, Pastor Murray, and I think you'll, you'll remember this. When we started our congregation, it started with 12 people. 12 people, three families, 12 people. Half of the people were adults and half of the people were children. And some were very young. And so as we started the congregation and we you know, were teaching, we realized Half our congregation are youth, are children. We've got to serve them as well. And so we started a, a youth study, and we looked at what was there, and we just said, you know, it's not going to be very helpful to teach them about Daniel and the lion's den this week, and Noah and the ark next, and then Adam and Eve, and this sort of uh, ad hoc, sporadic way of teaching. We said we need to teach them in a way that they can grasp and remember. And what we said is what they need is narrative. They need to understand the story arc of the Bible. And if they understand the arc of the Bible, the narrative, then when you say Daniel in the lion's den, when you say Noah's ark, when you say anything, they will know exactly where that fits in the storyline. So that's what we did from week to week. And we said, we said, you know, the, the hour before services will be for our youth. All the adults came too. And so every week we had everybody, but the first part of our service was aimed for our children. And then we had the formal service and everybody benefited because we took the story. We, we structured the whole, all the youth lessons were structured as a store, as a continuing biblical story. And we sent out the homework ahead of time. They came, they were ready to talk about it. And I think, and maybe I'll get your comments on this, Pastor Murray. I think that was so powerful, not only for our youth, but for the adults as well. And, and this is how we come now. Uh, I think God is blessing us in a way that we come every week tackling the scriptures, wrestling with the scriptures, trying to understand the scriptures, and just understanding even more deeply this biblical narrative. Yeah, sir, I absolutely remember that. And, uh, you know, it was outside of the regular service, so we involved some of the other parents, and uh, everybody took turns uh, teaching and, and brought their own perspective. And, uh, you know, we did it for five years, uh, and um, we would revisit, as you know, we did the uh, you know, Old Testament one year for 40 weeks, then uh, New Testament the next year, and then we'd go back to the Old Testament and uh, revisit it and visit the same topics, uh, dig a little deeper, um, and, and you know, I think we did the Old Testament three times, and every single time it was different. And, and Yes. A little bit deeper, so, 
Um, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, and and I, I think that point as well, that that's what being a good student is. As that happened to our kids, our children, it happens to us as well. That when we come back and we revisit material that we've gone over before, the fact that we now have a grounding in that material means that God can give us more. To him who has more will be given. And as we have more and then we come back to it, now we can pull back more. So to me, you know, I'm trying to put these studies in the archive because I understand what's coming in the future. And I don't know how long I'm going to be around, but I want, you know, that there's some cracking of the code of these books that later on when we come back to them, when the world has changed and we're seeing like I'm just gobsmacked at how fast our world is changing and particularly what's happening to America. I, I am astonished. Everybody accused me, I should say, people accused me of being political. Oh, you're being political. No, I don't care about politics. I do care about prophecy. And, and the, the, the place of America in the world and its collapse is highly prophetic, especially for Jerusalem. And the Middle East is, is blowing up. The Middle East, I should say, is heating up. It's about to blow up. It is heating up because of the irresponsibility and the, the mischief of this current administration. I care about prophecy, and I, I, I've warned, but this, this is going to get ugly. The, the, the guardrails are being removed. There's no brakes, and, and it's full speed ahead. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, so, you know, as we go back over these, as the world changes, and we, you know, now that we understand Isaiah more, I wish we could go start Psalms all over again. You know, when we, when we finish Isaiah, rather than continuing in Psalms, let's go back to Psalm 1. Because now we're going to have a completely different, pers- a deeper perspective. And then when we finish Psalms, let's go back to Isaiah 1. And we could just be going back and forth, Isaiah, Psalms, Isaiah, Psalms, to understand why Christ, when he was on earth, quoted from these texts so frequently. But I think, oh yeah, I studied that, you know, got it. No, it's deep. And we have to keep going back and putting down these layers. Yeah, uh, as you said, uh, um, you know, I think of, you know, Hebrews or Luke and Acts, all those sorts of things to go back and, and have a look at. Uh, Revelation would be great to go back and do it yeah. again. Keep, uh, the instruction is to read and keep reading. Yeah. 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 And the world is changing so fast. In fact, uh, you know, as we speak, uh, he's addressing, the president is addressing a joint set of, uh, session of Congress and, uh, uh, Spending a lot, a lot more, a lot more of our of their the money uh, as we speak. So who knows what's going, who knows what's going on right now? The uh, Green New Deal and all those sorts of yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Let's just keep printing this uh, nation into oblivion. That when this thing collapses, it's going to be spectacular. I just saw in the news as well this evening, Pastor Murray. Don't know if you saw it that they've uh, uh, they've raided uh, Rudy Giuliani's mm-hmm. the former president's lawyer. They've raided his home. And they've taken out all of his electronic devices. So, you know, in, in, in communism, they'd say, um, show me the man and I'll tell you the crime. They, they, they want to lock these people away. If you oppose them politically, and, and the founders of America did everything they could to have checks and balances. All the checks and balances are being removed. And, and, and the Marxists are controlling everything. It's, it's going to be spectacular. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we'll look forward to next week. And okay, I just, just a question came up that we can tackle next week. I always thought we are spiritual Israel, not physically connected. However, Ezekiel 47, 22 and Isaiah 56, 3 suggest that we are also heirs and physically connected to Israel. Your thoughts? So, Sister Donna, we will look at that next week. Sure. And then there's a comment here from Brother Corey. 
I grew up in the YEA, YEA and CMCGI group and camp brought me back to the word. I see. I'm not sure what the YEA is. Do you know? Uh, no, I, 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 no, uh, no. Youth Evangelical Association. Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's 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 ringing something, but not enough for me okay. to say it publicly. So, so so praise God. Uh, CEM and CGI groups and camp brought me back to the Word. If it wasn't for being raised in the Word, I would still be in the world and okay with that. Brilliant. God God be praised. Very very good, Pastor Murray. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'll tell you, brethren, uh, one of my high privileges and honors is to, to work side by side with Pastor Murray, a very, very special man, very dedicated man. And I just can't imagine this ministry without him. We have our brothers, Jan and Jim as well. We have a beautiful congregation and now virtual congregation that supports us. I received two beautiful cards this week. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a tough road, but it's so fulfilling. And you spoke about joy. You know, on Sabbath, yeah. No matter what, this joy that we carry can never be taken away. And, and it's because of this joy that we can go into the, these difficult scriptures of Yeshayahu. These are tough scriptures. He, he was in opposition to uh, the, the, the king, uh, the kings of Judah, and, and all the leaders of Judah. It was tough. Jeremiah was even worse. And yet they had this joy of the Lord. So very, very good. Let's, yeah, let's thank end you. There. Go ahead. appreciate your kind words, and uh, definitely uh, we appreciate all the hard work. I don't know that anybody knows all the hard work that you do behind the scenes, but uh, we, uh, it's uh, definitely appreciated, and uh, it's a pleasure uh, pleasure walking beside you. And, and uh, our other, as you mentioned, Deacon Jan, uh, Jim, and uh, uh, David Townsend as well. Yes, that's right. God be praised. Thank you, brother. Thanks, brethren. Jesus Take Christ care. is Lord. Amen. Yep.